San Francisco, California, weighing 248 pounds, the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion, Pat Patterson. No individual made as quick an impact on the World Wrestling Federation as the Blonde Bomber, Pat Patterson. Pat made his WWF debut in 1979 and promptly became the first ever Intercontinental Champion. He was known as the greatest ring psychologist of all time and was one of the most loved and one of the most hated superstars of his time. He had classic battles with Sergeant Slaughter, Ivan Kolov, Ken Patera, and Dominic Danucci. In 1979, Pat had an unprecedented four WWF title matches in Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund. But if you follow the career of Pat Patterson, you know full well you can never count this pen out until the bell has rung completing the match. In the early 80s, Pat and the legendary Hall of Famer Andre the Giant were a virtually unstoppable tag team. In the ring, Pat Patterson was all business. At times, his style was a little unorthodox. But he was always a master technician, using the dreaded figure four leg lock and his patented bombs away maneuver from the top rope. Every time I step into the ring, it's always a pleasure for me. No matter who I step in the ring with, whether it's the Iron Sheik or uh, Blassie, anybody, I love to step in the ring, whether I win, lose, or draw. Pat Patterson, one of my dearest friends in this business for, well, over 30 years. First met Pat Patterson in San Francisco in the early 1960s when he and Ray Stevens were undoubtedly the greatest tag team combination at that time in the entire world, no question about it. To know Pat Patterson, you have to love him. And he's been my friend since the first day I met him. And there's nothing I can say that's detrimental about Pat Patterson, except he's an asset to our profession. Here's Gerald Briscoe, WWE Hall of Famer. You work in, you work in this business. You travel the roads. You go up and down them. You meet people. You become acquainted with people. A lot of people. A lot of fans. A lot of talent. A lot of crew. You become acquainted with. There are very few people that you can say that you make these road trips with that after after a few years that that they're family to you. That was family. Heaven's a beautiful place with Pat there, laughing and telling his corny jokes. Pat Patterson was just a colossal of, of a character and of a human being in, in our profession. You're looking right now on your television screen at one of the best wrestlers in the world today, Pat Patterson. He had so much knowledge. Working with Pat was was like working with an encyclopedia. You ask him a question about any time, any era, any, any talent, and he had a story. He saw the history of our business. The impact that he's had on uh, world wrestling entertainment uh, throughout its inception is, is, is so valuable. Uh, to me, he was the most wonderful person and, and the most giving person. Pat was one of those guys that just gave you everything that you ever asked for and, and more. This business was Pat Patterson. Pat was a businessman 24-7, but Pat loved to have his good times. Long live the Stooges. All right. You make friendships, and when you make a friendship, you know it, it's true, it's a true friendship, a true bond, because we go through so many rough times on the road uh, and away from your family and your friends, but Pat was always there, and if you were down, Pat could read you. Pat had a special, special uh, trait about him where he knew if something was wrong with you, and he would get out and pull that out of you.
Once we win the championship, we'll go over to celebrate, all right? He was magic like that. You weren't a friend of Pat. You, you were a brother of Pat. Whether you, you were a, a, a sound technician, a cameraman, or a producer, or director, it didn't matter. Pat Patterson, Pat was your friend for life, and he would stick up for you. There, there's so many of them at NXC that had never had the pleasure of meeting Pat Patterson. I really feel for those people because now all they have is people like my word and, and other people's word. His value will never diminish in this, in this company because there's guys like Shawn Michaels, there's guys like Triple H, those caliber of guys that Pat passed that knowledge along to. Shawn is here teaching and uh, as long as Sean is here teaching, he's passing Pat Patterson knowledge on to these young people. And that's, that's the biggest compliment you can pay to somebody when it's a generation to generation. And Pat will always have that. Pat's impact in this company will never, ever be forgotten. Kevin Owens. I just found out about Pat Patterson passing away this morning and uh, just writing a tweet about him doesn't feel right because Pat was so kind and helpful to me from the moment I set foot in WWE. Uh, he and I, I guess, bonded over the fact that we were both French-Canadian. But beyond that, He was just a really good guy. And at first I thought him wanting to be so helpful for me in WWE was, you know, because of that bond, the French-Canadian bond, but I realized it's not because he was like that with everyone. He truly loved trying to help, you know, this generation and trying to help this industry any way he could. Um, and that was just him as a, as a, you know, a wrestling guy, like this wrestling veteran. But as a human being, he was even better. Um, not one, not one time did I see him where he didn't ask about my son and my wife and my daughter and even my parents how they were doing. And you know, some people just ask these questions because that's just kind of what you do. But not Pat. Pat would care. He would listen. He would remember the next time, but he would still ask how everybody's doing. Um, Anytime he'd see my son, he would, uh, you know, talk about how big he's getting and how tall he's getting and how pretty soon he'd be kicking my ass. Um, <laughs> he was just a great guy. And uh, I hadn't talked to Pat in far too long. And this is a stern reminder to keep in touch with those you love and uh, those who are important to you because you never know what's going to happen, I guess. Uh, Pat will be sorely missed by everyone in WWE, and uh, my thoughts are with his friends and, and family. Goodbye, Pat. Thank you. Pat Patterson against Kevin Sullivan, May of 1977, Championship Wrestling from Florida. Mr. Patterson, you're in the ring, of course. There comes uh, Kevin Sullivan getting set to move into the ring and obviously a very important match for both of you very important match especially for me because kevin sullivan is a good wrestler but now look at mike graham what is he doing there he doesn't belong in that ring well he's a tag team partner of kevin's and is obviously down there uh, uh with his friend that's all well wait a minute this is not a tag team match it's one against one and he does not belong in the ring i'm trying to tell him to get out of the ring and he gets mad at me See, everybody gets mad at me because I tell them the truth. All I told him, he didn't belong there, I told him to get out. And he started getting mad at me. Now Sullivan's telling me she wants Graham to stay there. He's not going to stay there. I told him, no way Graham's going to stay there. I, I would hardly call that a, a, a sportsman-like move, sir. Listen, that's a lie. He didn't see that. He spit at me. He spit at me. And nobody does that to me and gets away with it. He spit at me. I certainly didn't didn't see uh, anybody uh, certainly didn't see Mike Graham spitting at you. I, that's not his uh, 
his mannerism at all, but uh, you're about to get yourself in trouble here. Well, Bishop, I know he doesn't usually do that, but he was mad he did spit at me. Now he wants to fight me. He doesn't belong in that ring. Well, admittedly, your, mic is, your, your match is with uh, Kevin Sullivan and not Mike Graham, but uh, and here Kevin is explaining to Mike uh, that he will have to be out of the ring, and, of course, Mike understands that, too, but I can certainly see why Mike Graham wants some of you. Well, you see, Kevin was trying to be out of the ring. I mean, he was trying to tell Graham to get out, but um, Graham wanted to stay in the corner, and no way was I going to wrestle and have him stay in the corner. Now, look at this. The match did not even start. I didn't break no rules at all. I didn't throw any punches, and look at him, and look at him. He's all over me. I didn't break one rule. I didn't do nothing. As soon as the bell rang, he attacked me right away. Now, you call that fair and square? You call that scientific wrestling? No way, man. Well, those two flying drop kicks were certainly scientific, and uh, they put you on the canvas, and uh, Kevin Sullivan now coming down with a forearm across the deltoid muscles and uh, clamping an arm bar on you. Now you've caught him in a backdrop, and uh, here's where Sullivan gets out of the way just in time. Well, he had me in trouble, I'll say that. The only reason why he got me in trouble is because he attacked me before the bell rang. But right here, he was giving me tackles, and I had smarted him. I ducked, and he went right out of the ring. Now I said to myself, well, he wants to break the rule, and he wants to fight that way, I'll fight that way too. And now I got his leg, and I'm wrapping his leg against the steel pole. And I'll guarantee you, every time I hit that leg against the steel pole, you could hear it crack and bang. Well, obviously, we've got a, a pure six brawl erupting uh, out of this match uh, between Kevin Sullivan and Pat Patterson. And uh, now that you've uh, injured that leg, you're certainly taking advantage of it. You bet. Look at him. Look at him. He's trying to get out of it, and he can't. I'm going on to that leg. Look at him. I'm twisting that ankle. You see, now, watch him trying to get up. He knows he's in trouble. But I'll say one thing, but he kept wanting to try. He kept wanting to try. But no way. I had him. I had him. And there again, I wrap his leg against the post. Look at it. Bang. Boy. Now, E.L. asked for that. I do not intend to wrestle like that, but he started breaking the rules first. When somebody started breaking the rules, I can break the rules better than anybody. And that's exactly what I'm doing now. Well, Mr. Patterson, there's certainly no question about it uh, that the uh, rule book's been thrown out. And here you're going for something that frankly amazes me, and I know amaze the people, too is the figure four leg lock. Listen, I've been using that figure four leg lock for many, many years, and I use it faster and better than anybody. And I just wanted to prove to the fans and to the wrestlers that I can use that hole. And he gave up on it. Here comes Mike Graham. He does not belong in that ring, and here he is again. You know what? He is mad because I took his little trophy away from him. Well, listen, he can't take defeat. He should get out of the wrestling business, period. I beat him fair and square, and all he's doing now is crying and crying, and he's chasing me all over. Why? Can't he take it? If he gets beat, man, you get beat, that's all. Well, you're here at ringside, obviously asking the referee to raise your hand in victory one more time. Of course, I have to ask the referee. He came and did it. Well, that's uh, a matter of opinion, but... Uh... You uh, seem to be baiting uh, Mike Graham here, and you could be asking for a lot of trouble, sir. I'm not baiting him. I'm just trying to tell him to stay off my back and lay off my matches. I'm telling him. Now, all he has to do now is get me mad, and he's going to really be in trouble. He's lucky that I don't get mad. I have a lot of patience. He's the one getting mad. Now, I'm starting to get mad, but I realize that I'm not fighting him. I was fighting Sullivan. Let's take you also to the late 70s. Pat Patterson teams with Ray Stevens, a tremendous one-two punch against the great Billy Robinson and Frank Hill. This taking place in the American Wrestling Association. and Hill win the match. Uh, hey, listen, we better get somebody some help out here. Billy Robinson is is injured. We've got to get some help. They're going to have to take and carry this man out of the ring. They shouldn't let him off. He's been ready when they came off that top rope across his back. 
Oh, here comes Greg Gagnon to check on Billy Rufus R. Jones. Patterson and Stevens look like they'd like to get another shot in there on him. Evan Johnson preventing Patterson from getting in. I'll tell you, Steve Olsonowski and Evan Johnson really came to the rescue of uh, Billy Robinson, as did, because uh, Frank Hill was out on the floor. He was knocked out there momentarily. And they're going to have to carry Billy out of Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to try to let you uh, inform you as to what his condition will be. Be real careful with that back, guys. Boy, they know what they're doing. I just, um, just feel it. Oh, and Billy's in extreme pain, ladies and gentlemen. Uh-oh. And uh, I don't know what they're going to do. And now they're coming in again. Look at Patterson and Stevens. Now they're going after everybody. Rufus, they're fighting. In the oh, good gosh. Get him! Get him out of here! They came in and tried to give him a shot again. Evan Johnson, Steve Olsonowski. Billy's... Billy is limping out of here. I'm being assisted by Evan Johnson, Frank Hill, Rufus Jones, Greg Gagne, Steve Olsonowski. There's more action. Boy, oh boy, what could be more action on All-Star Wrestling? Ladies and gentlemen, you saw what happened here on television. Billy Robinson really severely injured. We just got a report that they're after, looking after him right now. And and I'll tell you right now, I've also been informed by by the stewards that there will be some heavy fines levied at, uh, against both Listen, Pat Patterson never mind and Listen, we've been pushed around long enough. Nobody but nobody is going to push Stevens and Patterson around anymore. I know what they were trying to do today. Let me tell you something. Billy Robinson stepping in the ring. We didn't sign a contract to wrestle him. And I know what they had in mind to cripple one of us. But look who ended up crippled. Huh, Billy Robinson? No more. Nobody's going to count us anymore. Stevens and Patterson are going to go all the way to the top. The world's tag team champions. It won't be long, believe you me. Right there. Is your great British Empire heavyweight champion. You've seen him carting him off to the hospital. Now, he stuck his nose in something that wasn't none of his business, and that's just a sample of what's going to happen to any other wrestler in the AWA. Now, if anybody's got any guts, come and sign your name on the dotted line for a tag match with Patterson and Stevens, and especially the world champions. The chicken-livered, yellow-bellied little dogs have been running and hiding now, I doubt if we can get any more tag matches, Pat. We might have to wrestle a few single ones. And I might want to add this. It done my heart good to see that cockeyed coal miner, Billy Robinson, getting carried out. Half the AWA tried to jump on us right there. So you tell me if there's not a conspiracy going on around here because they're scared of us. That's exactly right. And I'll guarantee you. That's one guy out of the barn right now. Billy We're Robinson out of time. There's going to be some fines. There's going to be... Pat Patterson, one of the all-time greats, was able to win his first WWE North American Heavyweight Championship on June 19, 1979. Let's take you back to Pat Patterson as a challenger, taking on the champion, Ted DiBiase. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this next contest, it is a title bout. It is for the North American Heavyweight Championship. It is scheduled for one fall with a 10-minute time limit. But first, I'd like to introduce the manager, the colorful Grand Wizard of Wrestling. And here in the corner to my left, the challenger from San Francisco, California, Weighing 248 pounds, it is Pat Patterson. And in the corner to my right, from Omaha, Nebraska, weighing 250 pounds, ladies and gentlemen, the North American heavyweight champion, Ted DiBiase. Patterson off the road, black body drop. Oh no. It appeared to me there, you 
Vic Patterson intentionally shot Dibiase into the referee. He did, and the referee's knocked out right now, and uh, I don't know, let's see what's going to happen now, because there's no referee really in the ring, you might say. Patterson going down in the tights. Patterson. Patterson has something around his... What is that? Breast knuckles, man. He's got something like breast knuckles. And wow. All over the country, whether it was in Canada, whether it was in the WWE, whether it was in territories across the country, Pat Patterson made an impact. And even after he was done wrestling, as someone who was a genius in professional wrestling, behind the scenes for the WWE, he impacted so many wrestlers. We heard earlier from Kevin Owens, and now here's Daniel Bryan. Daniel, your victory tonight was in honor of the late Pat Patterson. What did Pat mean to you? Uh, so it's it's hard to describe it all, honestly, because uh, Pat means so much. And you have to understand that, like, Pat means so much to so many people. So if you were to ask, like, who's who are the 50 people that he's had the most influence on, I am probably... Not, not even close to cracking that list. But he still means the world to me. Here's a couple of things uh, about Pat in regards to me. When I first came up here on NXT, uh, the company didn't have a lot of confidence in me, except for Pat Patterson. And then I got fired. And people were chanting Daniel Bryan at a bunch of different arenas. And Pat was the one who pushed and pushed and pushed to bring me back. So Daniel Bryan here in the WWE may not even be here without Pat Patterson. Uh, I'd also like to say that uh, one of the proudest moments of my career was actually WrestleMania 31. I had fought back from a, a neck injury to come back. I won the Intercontinental Championship uh, in the opening match. And Pat was the one who brought the Intercontinental Championship down to the ring. And so those are a couple like really key moments professionally. But one of the things that I think everybody will say about Pat is just his genuine warmth. And uh, my wife and I were talking about this just the other day. Pat could make you feel like you were the most important person in the world. And when he talked to you, and when he joked with you, even though you've heard the joke a thousand times, it doesn't matter because he, he's so, he brings so much energy. And he's not, he's not somebody who's distracted or just talking to you, just, oh, I feel like I have to talk to you. No, when he's talking to you, he's there. He's like there. And, like, uh, you talk to a bunch of people backstage, and everybody feels this connection to Pat. And that's without us being a part of his generation. He, was, he wasn't here every week and he, for us, the way that he was for previous generations. But that just goes to show what a special human being he was. Not just as a wrestler, he was an incredible performer. If you talk to anybody who knows about 70s wrestling and 60s wrestling... Pat Patterson was one of the premier wrestlers in the entire world. Like, you talk about best wrestlers in the world, that's Pat Patterson. Then he comes to the WWE, and he helps form all of this. This People think of WWE as this billion-dollar company, and it is. But it wasn't always like this. And Pat helped form this. And he was there from the late 70s all the way until that. And so it's, it's hard for me to, and like I said, I'm not in the top 50 people if he's influenced, or that he's influenced. But it's hard for me not to cry when I talk about him. Because... Well, thank you, Daniel, and congratulations on your win. Thank you. Pat Patterson, 
meant so much to so many people that he was able to reach out and touch, to be able to reach out to those that are no longer in the business, that are currently in the business. Pat Patterson had such an influence on so many around the wrestling landscape. How about a deep dive into Pat Patterson and his career? Let's turn to someone who saw him when he was a kid. Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer, who grew up in San Francisco, saw Pat Patterson in the 60s into the 70s. And so we'll do a deep dive now on Pat Patterson and his life from Dave Meltzer, wrestling historian from the Wrestling Observer. I leaps and bounds. I've seen more Pat Patterson matches live than any wrestler ever um, that I've seen. Um, he was in the first TV show I ever saw of wrestling. He was in the first live show I ever saw of wrestling. Uh, I was in the first major show I ever saw of wrestling. He wrestled here for the first uh, six years or so that I was a fan all the time. He's one of the greatest workers of his era. And, um, uh, you know, then went on to do so many different things over the next 50 years in wrestling. Uh, he passed away at 1.15 a.m., roughly uh, late, I guess you'd say last night. Um, he from it, the, the cause of death was liver failure. He had a blood clot in his liver um, on November 27th, was rushed to the hospital, and things got worse from there. He probably was suffering from cancer. We don't know that, but he probably was because he had lost like 60 pounds in, in recent months. Uh, was living in uh, Hallandale, Florida, which is near Miami. He was at a hospital in South Beach. And um, pretty much because of his age and because he'd had, you know, all kinds of health problems or, or health problems, he was pretty much... Um, suffering from dementia as well. He was pretty much in a, a um, like a, a center where they take care of you and couldn't leave or, or didn't leave much, uh, was, wasn't traveling much anymore. And um, that was you know, the situation there. Um, you know, he, uh, I, I would say from a booking standpoint, um, I wouldn't say that the best years of WWE booking were uh, when Patterson was assisting Vince, uh, but I would say maybe like five of the six or seven best years were. Um, he was the architect. I mean, the booking certainly in the late 80s was, was much better than most periods in company history. And um, he was a big, 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 big part of that. You know, it was uh, came up with the Royal Rumble, which was an offshoot of the San Francisco Battle Royal, which was an offshoot of the Honolulu Battle Royal. And um, he um, helped, you know, he, he was pretty much a genius when it came to um, visualizing matches and um, coming up with finishes. Although, you know, very heavy referee bump finish guy more than he, he learned a lot from Roy Shire and, and, and Eddie Graham and um, he differed greatly from Roy Shire in the sense that Roy Shire didn't do comedy and Patterson loved comedy uh, so you know he would you know he loved doing comedy but he couldn't he couldn't do any comedy here because the main event guy and, and they wouldn't go for it um, when him and Stevens teamed up this was this would have been before my time this was mid 60s um, I mean, I remember that they would do these matches at house shows that would go, you know, 45 minutes with a million false finishes and doing everybody's finishing moves because they could do anything in the ring. They were just incredible. And they would drive Roy Shire crazy because he wanted to protect people's finishes and didn't believe in... He, Roy Shire's philosophy of wrestling was actually very patterned. It was um, every match had to have... Uh, several minutes of technical wrestling, uh, several minutes of brawling, and um, a 
number of high spots, certain number of high spots, but not too many. And, you know, you, everybody had their finisher. They, they almost always won with their finisher. Uh, finisher was to be protected for the most part um, and used a lot in the in the top matches because the main events were always two out of three falls. So you would use your finishers to beat top guys. So, you know, that was the kind of the situation there. Um, came from Montreal and um, first he wrestled for a few years in Montreal on small shows, went to Boston um, and then uh, Mad Dog Vashon booked him to Oregon. Uh, call, you know, uh, actually, he didn't call him up. I think he sent him a letter because uh, he probably couldn't. He probably didn't even know his number, but somehow he got the letter. And Mad Dog, Mad Dog had seen him when he first broke in in Montreal and thought he was really good. Everyone thought he was good. I mean, from day one, when he was 17 years old, he would take all kinds of crazy bumps. So everybody wanted to work with him. Um, he became, he was known at that time as the guy with the purple trunks because he loved Killer Kowalski wore purple and he loved Killer Kowalski and Buddy Rogers. So he pretty much copied, um, Kowalski's purple trunks, Buddy Rogers' blonde hair, figure four leg lock was Kowalski's, um, um Buddy's move. And the, Bombs away knee drop was Kowalski's move, so those were like his big go-to moves. And then um, when he was in Boston, Mad Dog, uh, who was superstar in Oregon, got him a job with Don Owen, and he went to Tony Santos, said he was going to leave, and Tony Santos talked him into staying, so he stayed. And then uh, Mad Dog was furious. You know, he'd got him his break. Oregon's a great place to, to wrestle, much better than Boston at the time. And Mad Dog sent him another letter. You no-showed. You know, you no-showed your start date. And I'm giving you another start date. And you better be here because if you don't, I'm going to find you. And I'm going to beat the shit out of you if you're not here on that day. And Patterson knew about Mad Dog's rep and, in fact, had seen Mad Dog in fights previously. Mad Dog was the toughest street fighter in Montreal by reputation. So Patterson was scared shitless. So he borrowed money from Louis Dondero, his boyfriend, and uh, he got him a plane ticket and went to Oregon and he was there. And uh, that was kind of the start of his career. He went all over for a couple of years, but Oregon was kind of his base. But he, he went to you know, territory to territory for several years. Uh, then in 64, in Oregon became a star. And then he was booked into San Francisco. And Roy Shire hated uh, gay people. And Pat Patterson was gay. And Pat Patterson was such a great worker that uh, after like a week, he didn't give a shit. <laughs> and it was just like, this guy's great. And put him in a tag team with Ray Stevens. Now you have to understand Ray Stevens was the top singles guy in the territory. And, but Shire just saw them as a tag team and they became the best tag team in the history of wrestling up to that point in time. And one of the greatest of all time, for sure. Uh, they were just incredible workers and, um, great talkers and great chemistry and the whole bit. They were, they were awesome. And, uh, then they did the split. Ray Stevens went babyface. They had one of the greatest feuds in the history of uh, California wrestling right near the top. And then Ray Stevens went to the AWA and Pat Patterson became the top star in the territory turned babyface. And I would say the San Francisco territories demise uh, started. Not immediately, but was due to the loss of Pat Patterson when him and Shire finally had the falling out and Patterson left. Patterson went to Florida, AWA, um, you know, always on top, um, you know, singles, tag team, whatever, um, great worker, great talker, the whole bit. It's just, just had it. He was uh, just a natural at this thing. Went to WWF, uh, had four Madison Square Garden main events with Bob Backlund. And, um, which was the record. Nobody ever, I think the story was that he was supposed to get three and then somebody was going to come and didn't come, which might be Terry Funk, but I'm not sure about that. Um, cause I know Terry Funk was going to go to WWF right around that time to do a program with Backland. I mean, it was all set up and then Terry backed out. So that may have been where Patterson got the fourth match, which was the cage match. 
Um, and um, so so they had that. And then uh, Patterson, after that run, um, he uh, became babyface television announcer, and he would do the programs off the TV announcing, like, uh, I think he did a program with Angela Mosca. The big one, of course, was Sergeant Slaughter, the alley fight with Slaughter, which I probably watched a hundred times um, from Madison Square Garden, 1981 match of the year. Um, when, when the, you know, at that point in time, pretty much everyone in the Northeast thought it was the greatest match they'd ever seen. I mean, it, even I'd seen a lot of Patterson matches, and that Slaughter match was maybe, I mean, as a brawl and everything like that. Um, it may have been better than almost all of the matches I saw of him here. I think there's a few here that might have been better. I saw a 65-minute match with Don Morocco at the Cow Palace that was unfrickin' believable. I mean, it was, you know, um, I saw a 60-minute match with Ray Stevens. Those are both Iron Man matches, by the way. But they weren't called Iron Man matches. They were just called Most Falls in 60 Minutes. And um, the Morocco one was like 65 minutes long because they tied and they went into sudden death. So that's your um, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels deal, where that came from. And Pat Patterson pretty much laid that whole Bret Michaels match out, other than the fact that they should have done falls, but that's another issue. Um, but with Morocco, I think it was 3-3. Three to three, And they had one of the most unique finishes because it made sense that you would never do now because they don't do these things where um morocco threw uh, let's see what morocco uh Pat, okay morocco was went out of the ring he pulls patterson by the leg so he's out of the ring he's ramming patterson's leg into the post uh pulls patterson to the floor puts on the spinning toe hold um, which was his finisher on Patterson, and then jumps into the ring and doesn't beat the 20 count. He misses, and Patterson was ruled the winner because Morocco was out for five seconds before he pulled Patterson out, so the count was only 15 on Patterson, and it made all the sense in the world. And, you know, like now you would never do it. It's just a double count out, right? But logically, the first guy out of the ring the count should start on him earlier than the other guy, if you think about it. So they did that, and of course that led to a rematch because, you know, um, Morocco was the one who was on top when it was over. Um, Morocco was the, the heel in this. Um, they had a great, it was the first time I ever saw the thing where he didn't turn on Patterson, but heels, they were, they were in a tag team, and the heels, and I think it was the invaders, were, were beating up on Patterson. And Morocco just stood there as his partner. And he didn't turn on him, but he didn't help him. And everybody's screaming for him to help, and he just didn't help. And um, that was a pretty, that was, that was, Morocco had always been a baby face up until that point. So that was his turn. And that was uh, the beginning of a great run for Don Morocco as well. Uh, so went to WWF and, um, you know, the, they had the slaughter feud. And then when Vince went on his expansion, um, he wanted Patterson to work in the office as vice president of talent relations. And Pat Patterson had never worked in an office in his life and thought it would be terrible and just wanted to be a wrestler. But Vince told him to do it. And he ended up, you know, that was his job. And he learned to like his job. I mean, he wasn't an office guy, but, you know, it was it was such an odd couple, him and Vince, in so many ways, but they were best friends. And um, I remember, like, there was always, you know, Vince hates cigarette smoke, and Pat Patterson, like, always smoked. And Pat would, like, try to sneak out, you know, of, of his office and smoke, and then he would come in, and Vince would have fits on him and because he knew he was smoking and things like that. And, um, man, there's so many, so many incredible, incredible stories. So he... he pretty much you know he was the booker with vince you know through man i don't know i mean into the 90s for sure uh kind of stepped away and um you know would come back you know come back for the royal rumble help book the royal rumble things like that uh, loved to go to nxt loved to teach people i mean it's funny because it was like he, 
Um, I mean, I, I, the last time I saw him, which would have been in England, um, he hated, we were watching, it was a Revolution Pro show, and he hated it. Like, he didn't want anyone to know that. Um, I think he probably told Bertrand, who was his, Bertrand Hebert, who was his book, the, the guy who uh, ghost wrote his, uh, his, wrote his autobiography. But he's just, this is like, this stuff will never work. It's like, it's Circus de Soleil. I mean, just, and it was, you know, like, uh, basically strong style stuff. And he just, no one's ever going to pay to see this stuff. He was so negative on it when nobody was talking, when no, nobody was looking. He wouldn't do that in front of fans, but he was so negative. And, um, which was just talking about how bad wrestling had gotten. Um, who's the heel? Who's the baby face? Um, he was never into Japanese style, even though he did very well in Japan. Uh, but he, it was not his thing. I mean, he used to not, he, that was the place he didn't really like to work. Um, he really liked being either a baby face or a heel, and he was great at both. Um, tremendous heel worker, tremendous space worker, tremendous, one of the best I've ever seen at carrying people. Um, I would say, um, you know, until, let's see, I would, let's see. I mean, like, Red Bastine had the rep for being a great worker, and Patterson was better than Red Bastine. Um, as far as, like, Stevens had the rep for being the best worker, and when I saw them, I thought, okay, I thought Patterson had passed Stevens. I mean, Stevens, from every account, from everyone I know who's seen them both would say, everyone would say that Stevens, when he was young, was better than Patterson ever was. But I didn't see Stevens until after he broke his leg and he was not the same, but he was still, he was still like, like Patterson, he was very much a natural wrestler. Just, they just had a thing in the ring. I mean, Patterson, what's so funny with Patterson is, is that he, did not do, like, he didn't excel at sports. He wasn't good at sports growing up in Montreal. Um, the only sport he liked was, he wanted to be, was a figure skater, which, you know, whatever. And um, when he went into a ring, in a wrestling ring, he could just do it all immediately. I mean, he could he could fly. He could, there was nothing the guy couldn't do. Um, brawl. Technical wrestle. I mean, he was he was one of the most complete wrestlers that I ever saw, at least in that era, and even even now. I mean, he was just complete at every facet of wrestling. He was he was good. Like 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 Jack Briscoe was a better athlete, um, but I, I don't even know if I'd say Jack Briscoe was a better worker. Um, and he was not for sure not as complete. I mean, Jack Briscoe couldn't be a heel. I mean, Jack Briscoe could be a heel in a way, but not the level of Patterson. And um, like Stevens could do it all as well. Um, and really, I mean, and I guess in some ways, I would say Stevens was more successful. Um, but you know, I mean, like you know, I'd say like him and and Terry Funk in the seventies. I mean, who else? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else really of that year. I mean, Billy Robinson was a great technical wrestler. Bockwinkel was great, but um, it's funny. I mean, he didn't manage both, and I mean, he said the same thing that I would say. And it's as a worker, Patterson was better than Bockwinkel. And I know a lot of people will will think like Bockwinkel was this awesome, awesome worker, and he was. But uh, I saw a lot of both of them up close, and um, I would, I would, you know, they 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 were both really good. But I, I would say Patterson was better the first time. I think I saw guys that were really what I would say better than Patterson would be um, Ric Flair and Randy Savage were the, would be the first ones that I saw that I would say to me were better. Um, so, you know, and then, um, boy, oh boy. I mean, just there's so many stories of him in this era, in this area. Um, you know, the whole thing of... Um, I, mean, I probably learned w what somebody, what a gay person is from, from Pat Patterson. Cause I was 11 years old and I remember going to the matches and, you know, I would hang around with the women who are not much older than me that were, that boy, that boy, would that be terrible today? But that's how the world was. And the whole big thing, you know, Patterson was a good looking guy and, um, and, you know, the women all liked him and he had no interest in him. And that, and everybody learned very quickly that Pat was into guys. And like, you know, when you're that age, it's like, well, he's top baby face. Actually, he was top heel first, but he was top baby face and he's cool. You know, he 
great performer. So it was like it, it meant nothing. I know like when I was in high school, I know like most of the schools, like they do all the, the gay slurs and everything. That was a real big deal then. You know, all the words that I would never say now and I never said then either for the most part. But I know at our school, because we had a lot of wrestling fans um, and they knew um, that it was like there was no stigma at all. And I know that in high school, that's so unusual. It, 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 I later learned, but it really wasn't because, hey, Pat Patterson, you know what I mean? Pat Patterson's gay and he's the coolest guy on TV. He was top wrestler, you know, and wrestling was real big. And um, so, I mean, that was a real, that you know, that's kind of, you know, when I think back at my childhood and stuff, um, you know, Pat Patterson and Billy Graham were the people who got me interested in pro wrestling. And uh, then he became a, an exec and, uh, wow, you know, um, the whole, that whole, you know, I mean, originally George Scott was the booker and him and Hogan didn't get along. And George Scott was like the legendary booker that built the Carolinas. Um, so Patterson kind of took over and Patterson and Vince would book the shows at Vince's pool and they booked it old style where you would book, you know, they would run cities like the garden or San Francisco, Oakland or whatever, Toronto, uh, Chicago. And they'd run these cities once a month and they would do show to show programs, you know, so they booked way in advance. Their booking was organized. They didn't change it every five minutes. I mean, you, you, the, you know, things were, so, you know, they plan stuff out months and months in advance, you know, and obviously sometimes you have to change stuff, but you usually only due to injuries or, or if a guy, you know, got fired or walked out or something. And I, I thought that the booking that they did for the most part in that era was, was really solid compared to now, you know, um, but, um, you yeah, know, very well liked to saw the thing on NXT tremendous uh thing there um everybody liked him um when it came to uh Dwayne Johnson the rock so rocky johnson and pat patterson knew each other from here um they were in fact world tag team champions here and rocky called patterson and i want you to watch my son dwayne train and he'd been training and ron slinker had been training dwayne and so Patterson goes there and watches him. And the first thing he says is, this guy's got more potential than anybody I've ever seen in my entire life. I remember those words. And then they signed him. And, um, you know, that was the beginning of The Rock. And he was the um, the Rock's guy. And, and Pat always protected The Rock in the early period when, when The Rock was struggling. Pat always protected him. And then when The Rock became, you know, he, he would be the guy that Dwayne would go to for advice. And, um, you know, just, you know, the, a big, big, big part of, of Dwayne's life. And he would tell you, it was, was uh, Patterson um, as, as far as like his career and everything like that. And um, Patterson was the guy after the Hogan era when Vince wanted to go with Luger. Patterson was the guy who pushed Bret Hart as a top guy to him and Shawn Michaels because Pat was a worker and, you know, Vince was always wanting to go with the big guys. Um, and, and he was the one responsible for those two guys getting their, their, you know, top pushes. They were going to be stars. They were going to be stars at the intercontinental level either way, but Vince would have probably never gone. I think with Sean, I think Vince really liked Sean. I think Vince probably would have gone with Sean anyway at some point as the top guy. I don't know about Brett, but when he did, you know, I mean, you know, that was Pat's doing. But when he did, you know, I mean, he, he, he whatever, did uh, pretty well. Um, obviously, Pat was the one in the, the Montreal Survivor Series who went and, told them about the finish which was the sharpshooter you know uh, thing you know in the double cross on brett um that everyone swears patterson didn't know patterson swears he didn't know um but he did suggest that that may have been vince going to him just get the spot in um i don't know how that all worked um i know that 
they did not want Pat to have heat with the boys because all the boys liked Pat. And Vince was wanting to, you know, Vince could, basically the deal was is that Vince would take the, uh, the, the heat for everyone hating what happened in Montreal and tried to, like, protect everyone else. Obviously, everyone knew Briscoe knew. Um, I think that that one, um, just by the nature of everything, or, you know, but, but they always said that, like, you know, that Pat didn't know. Um, Pat was responsible for Ray when Ray got the championship. When Ray won the Royal Rumble, the plan was that Ray would win the Royal Rumble, and I don't remember the scenario, but he was not going to get the match at WrestleMania. They were going to do something where he, he lost it. Um, I think Kurt was the champion, maybe, and maybe Randy Orton was going to beat Ray and everything, and all the writers all wanted Ray to win the title. Vince didn't even want him in the match, and Patterson was the one who basically was the tiebreaker, so to speak, and said... Ray should win, and and Vince listened. And of course, once Ray won, all Vince wanted to do was beat him and show that he wasn't a worthy champion. But you know, <laughs> in hindsight, I wasn't, I, I wasn't sure. I I remember when the whole thing was going down, and it was like it went from Ray not even being in the match to Ray winning the championship. You know, this was all, and it was all due to the Eddie Guerrero thing. And I didn't, and that thing was so freaking tasteless anyway. But I was like, man, if if Ray wins. It's like Vince is going to take it out on Ray. I almost wish he doesn't win. And then when he won, it was just like he was the worst book champion I ever saw. I mean, Vince was just whatever. But but Patterson was was the tiebreaker, so to speak, and the one who convinced everyone on on that on that one. And um, uh, I'm just trying to think what else. I mean, there's just a million stories from from this air area of matches and out of the ring stories and you know um uh like when the hell's angels beat up roy shire when they pulled the car over and patterson was in there with them and uh um i don't remember why they beat him up he told me the story but i forgot why they beat him up um there was the the stories of pat having it when patterson and stevens were together and you know ray was a big womanizer and and they were and patterson and stevens were were you know they traveled together they were buddies best friends and so ray would be chasing women and sometimes like the women would have a friend and you know patterson would have to take one for the team and he would talk about things like that um what other stuff there was the um i i guess okay so the 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 hawaii the patterson stevens got over huge in hawaii when they were world tag team champions so they were brought there every month and and always like were pretty much selling out there and um so there was this big rivalry between um so what, what happened actually so so the, the the backbone of this and this actually dates back to the battle royal and everything like that and the royal rumble was there was a promotional war in Hawaii, Roy Shire, um, and Ed Francis, who was the, the promoter in Hawaii, and Roy Shire was the other promoter. And they, um, there was a war going on, and at first, both sides were drawing great. Um, they were selling out head-to-head, -head, same night. I mean, um, Ed Francis would, would run like two shows a week. One was his regular night and then one would be on the, you know, the month when, when Roy would come in once a month, he would run another show head to head. Um, business was like 64 business was like booming there, but they both kind of knew or Ed knew. And it's just like, like in Ed's mind, it's kind of like, you know, Roy can go in here and, and burn out the territory and he still got his own territory but if he when he kills the territory i'm going broke so it was a real war and um, one time ed um with his connections uh at the airlines made sure somehow that every wrestler coming from san francisco never got their luggage so these guys had to go out there and buy gym clothes and try to wrestle in gym clothes one night, you know, at, at the uh, HIC arena, which is now the Blaisdell Center, uh, because none of them got, none of their bags came. And eventually, um, uh, Ed went to Roy Shire and said, like, 
um, there's the, the local promoter was a guy named Dallas Western, and he goes, you know, this he, this Dallas Western who was like a, I mean, he might have been travel agent or something, I don't forget, but he was a rich guy. Brought him in. They were they were and they were doing great with Patterson and Stevens as like the big the big draws for the Shire side and Bearcat and some other people and. Um, they, you know, he just goes like, uh, we should, you know, cut out this Dallas Western. Why don't we just work together? And, you know, he talked Roy into it. So Roy and him worked together. And so Ed had his crew and they'd bring in Patterson and Stevens and maybe Pepper Gomez and other people from San Francisco. Since San Francisco wrestlers were already over in the territory from the TV airing there. And they had a, a boom period, you know, like, and... So there was always the big rivalry between San Francisco, Cow Palace, and the HIC on who would draw the biggest houses on in the West Coast because um, the HIC had higher ticket prices. It was a smaller building. It only held like 8,700 people. Cow Palace held 14,000, but um, they charged more for tickets. So it was very competitive uh, back and forth. And then there was the show where uh, the... Um, the show in Honolulu where Johnny Berend got married and they sold it out at high ticket prices. He was getting married to a local Honolulu girl. And um, and so they sold it out. Patterson and Stevens were on the show. In fact, um, I believe they wrestled right before the wedding and Patterson wanted to see the wedding. So he was in the shower and he hears the wedding music. So he runs out and he's pretty much he's 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 like looking through the, the dressing room door and he's naked because you know he hasn't put his clothes on he ran out of the shower hearing the wedding bells and one of the guys like shoved him out of the dressing room door so everyone saw him with no clothes on which was actually a pretty famous story at the time and then um they came back to san francisco and ray stevens and patterson are doing an interview with walt harris and um and Ray Stevens just goes like, you know, the, the, those people in Hawaii, you know, they will do anything to get a bigger gate than us at the Cow Palace. And he goes and, and you know, it's not going to happen. But I will tell you and I will swear on my life that my partner, Pat Patterson, will never stoop to getting married in the ring just to pop a gate or so, which was like the big inside joke and everything. So, um what other stuff? I don't know. That's he. Um, you know, um, there's a million other stories that I could tell on Patterson. Uh, so Friday, uh, Pat Laprade and I are going to do a show, and we'll probably talk a lot more on on Patterson and his personal life and things like that. Louis Dundaro was the guy who recruited me to work for WWE. Patterson's boyfriend back in '87. Um, when Vince hired Louie to hire him to, to, to talk me into going there. Um, and, um, yeah, there's, Louie was a cool guy. I mean, um, in, in, um, 77, I think it was Louie and a couple of other gay businessmen in this area went to Roy and they were going to give him, um, I forgot what the money is, like $2 million in cash to buy the promotion. And, you know, with with Pat being the top star and Roy turned, you know, I think Roy and Pat were having problems. So they wanted to buy the promotion from Roy, and Roy turned him down, which in hindsight, I mean, Roy only went for a couple more years before he gave up. Um, and on Roy's last show was, was Battle Royal. And even though it was... Um, but I don't know how Roy did it because because what happened was Vern and Vern was coming into the territory and that's why Roy sh shut down because he didn't want to fight with Vern, um, and you know Roy called up Jim Barnett and the NWA. It's like Vern's coming to my city, you know, help me. You know that's what the NWA is supposed to do, and nobody liked Roy and nobody would help him, which was the whole key of why Roy joined the NWA and why LA joined the NWA is the idea is when Vern. Vern came to L.A. in the 60s against LaBelle, and the N.W.A. sent, like, the Carolinas guys, and they just gave these loaded shows and just basically just destroyed Vern. Vern had great cards there, but they couldn't match what the N.W.A. had, and obviously L.A., you know, revolved around Blassie and 
Um, I think Mosquers was big at the time too. So, um, you know, that's so, so, and, you know, Roy would send guys down there and it was so, so at this point, you know, it's like, I need, I need talent, um, or just actually told Barnett, you know, tell Vern to not come here. And I guess Barnett told me, told Vern not to come here. And Vern said, I'm coming. And the NWA couldn't stop him. And he came and Roy was just like, I'm done. And that's, that was, so Roy's last card was his last battle Royal. Uh, I think it's January 1981. And Patterson had actually worked for Vern's Battle Royal two weeks earlier. Vern came in with his first show with a Battle Royal built around, you know, a Battle Royal with Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens, who were like the two big stars. And somehow Roy called up Vince, uh, the father, Vince Sr., and was just like somehow got it a date because because Patterson was working for Vince but Vern would use him on big shows but somehow Roy got Patterson because who you know again was a big draw here uh along with the Florida guys we was mostly the Florida guys and and Patterson and probably Harley Race um I forgot who all the different guys were it might have been Harley Race on that show and um Patterson won the last battle royal, which is a big deal to him. He always, you know, even when his memory faded, the the fact that he won the last battle royal at the Cow Palace and was just like, Roy did the right thing. You know, it was his last show. I was the big star. And um, Patterson had a lot of memories of the Cow Palace. I remember years ago, they did a uh, WWE did this video and Patterson walked into the Cow Palace. This is, you know, empty building, you know, which almost no one uses now. And he just had these memories. And I remember him saying that, um, I think it was in his book, that, you know, he doesn't collect much in the way of memorabilia. He thinks it's all bullshit. He doesn't like, you know, telling wrestling stories so much. Um, who wins and loses, it's all boring to him. But... He really wished he got that U.S. title belt somehow, you know, wherever it is. I, I don't even know who has it because that meant a lot to him because I think that was the, the the belt. When he won that title, that was the one that solidified him in a major market as a major star. And when his parents had, ne his parents had never seen him wrestle in Montreal, his dad and him didn't get along because he was gay and his dad didn't like it. And, um, but they never came and then finally he talked them into coming to san francisco on a vacation and seeing him at the cow palace when he was you know in the main event and a big big time star and he was driving a cadillac and he was a superstar in the town and he was so proud that his uh parents could see him at the cow palace where you know he was like the the, the big you know king of everything so um well i mean i I probably would have been, I don't know, first first show I ever went to was uh, Patterson and Billy Graham and Paul DeMarco against Ray Stevens, Peter Maivia, and Rocky Johnson in the main event. And, man, that was a fantastic match. I went with some of my friends. We were, like, 11 years old, and we just had the greatest time, and we just couldn't wait to go back every week or every other week and that was you know that was so wild those guys were uh great billy graham wasn't a great worker but the rest of those guys were and billy graham had great charisma and um but freaking ray stevens and pat patterson whoa they were such great workers rocky johnson was a phenomenal athlete peter maybe had so much charisma uh demarco was was very good um so yeah that was those those guys gave what what a what a great show you would get from those guys. Great memories and great stories from Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer, a wrestling historian. Well, this is just part one of our tribute to Pat Patterson. I thought it was best for me to be able to hear the stories, for you and I both to hear the stories from Daniel Bryan and Kevin Owens and Gerald Briscoe and to relive some of the great matches that Pat Patterson had across the country from territory to territory, from the AWA to championship wrestling from Florida to the WWF at the time. And so this is just part one. 
part two will be next coming up very soon. You'll be able to hear part two as you'll hear from many others that love Pat Patterson for not what he did just in the ring, but behind the scenes. You think about some of the great finish guys, guys that could give you a great finish at those in the business will say that Pat Patterson is definitely in the top three of those that say, if you need a great finish for a match, Pat Patterson can be able to give you what you're looking for. And so we will go into hearing from those that wrestled against him, those that work with him closely in the WWE, and also some scandal. There's some stories and rumors and innuendo regarding Pat Patterson uh, in his career. We'll get into that as well. In part two of our conversation here, as we take a look at the glorious life of one of the all-time greats in professional wrestling, Pat Patterson. As we leave you here for part one, of course, Pat Patterson spent a lot of time doing shows across the country, uh, like uh, something to wrestle with with Bruce Pritchard. He and Conrad Thompson had a surprise guest on one of their shows that they've had. And here come through the curtain comes Pat Patterson, someone who loved to sing. Here he's singing What a Wonderful World. Right. 